morning, Grace Church, Medina East Campus. It's so good to be here with you this morning. My name's Clark, and uh, I help lead our young adults college-age ministry called New Perspective, and I also help lead and help oversee our life groups here in our Live It department. And uh, if you are here for the first time today, thanks for being here. We're so glad you're here. Um, at Grace, we go through what we call series, and uh, we pick a topic, talk about it for a couple weeks, and then we move on to something else. And we thought it'd be really helpful if we talked about this idea of what it means, what it looks like to overcome our fear. And so if you're just now jumping in, locking in with us, uh, we're in a three-part series. Last week was a little bit of an introduction, so we're picking back up um, this week with week two. And uh, if you weren't with us, you can get all caught up by going to medinaeast.graceohio.org and checking out our messages online there. Or you can subscribe to our podcast by just searching Grace Ohio and getting the Medina East podcast that way and uh, get caught up. But if you're just now uh, jumping in with us, I just want to say, so glad you're here. Last week, here's what we basically said. We kind of laid the foundation for this series and we talked all about the fact that fear is virtually inescapable. I know this in my life to be true, and my guess is a lot of us in this room this morning, we can identify with that, am I right? And so there's a lot of, there's a lot of stuff that we can... Uh, there's a lot of stuff that we can identify with in terms of where fear find, uh, rears its ugly head. And I know personally it, it kind of shows up in a lot of different areas. Uh, fear paralyzes me sometimes financially, and uh, sometimes it paralyzes me relationally. Sometimes it paralyzes me in, in ways just through, uh, you, you can't even quite put a pin in it. You just experience the stress and this anxiety of our day-to-day lives. And for some of you, the reason I know this is because I've talked to some of you. Some of you have even mentioned to me in ways where fear has paralyzed uh, you as well. And you've said to me, uh, Clark, I don't even know how I'm going to make my next house payment. And so you're paralyzed by fear financially. Maybe for some of us, we're doing okay financially, but maybe we put too much of our security in our finances. And so maybe for some of us, we're paralyzed by fear in that way. So for some of us, we're paralyzed by fear. Maybe you are a a young adult uh, Uh, guy or girl, and maybe for you, uh, you're paralyzed by fear relationally because you want to find someone else to get married and start a family with and and a life with someday. And for some of you, maybe for you, you're paralyzed by fear of the fact that you could live your whole life and be alone. And so some of us, we could be paralyzed by fear by our parenting. We have a lot of new moms and dads at Grace Church, and it's really, really awesome. But I know because I've talked to some of you that this is a very challenging thing. The only reason I know that is because I talked to you. I don't know anything about being a parent. But some of you have mentioned to me, it is, it is a stressful thing, is it not? And, and you said before, I never had to worry about having the formula ready. I never had to worry about watching the movie Frozen seven times a day. I never had to worry about making sure the diapers are changed. And now it seems like you're, you're paralyzed by fear, and you want to be a good mom, and you want to be a good dad. And we also mentioned, too, that uh, in in the National Institute of Mental Health, I recently just read that uh, um, 40 million Americans, 18% of uh, the United States, people 18 and older, suffer from general anxiety. And so it's a huge, huge problem. Many of us, we face this fear, and it's so pervasive in our day-to-day lives. So it begs a really good question, right? How do we overcome this fear that is so pervasive in our lives? And we said the answer is obvious. The answer is courage. But we didn't just stop there. We said, we said courage is not an autonomous, self-generated virtue. We said that courage is not an autonomous, self-generated virtue. We said it's a derivative virtue, and it derives from something else. It's a product of something else. We said that our courage derives from faith, and our faith is either placed in God or something else. And we said that because of that, 
where we place our faith is ultimately what will determine our capacity to be courageous. So again, if you weren't with us last week, I'd encourage you to, to subscribe to the podcast or you can catch up online by listening to that message. But today what we want to do is we want to continue this conversation about courage and we want to talk about another aspect of courage. We want to talk about courage in failure. We talk about courage in failure. And this is something, once again, that I've seen this in my own life. Uh, failure is something that it rears its ugly head as well. And I wish that wasn't the case, but it is true. And when it happens, um, we are given a decision. I believe that we're not a product of our circumstances. We're a product of our decisions. And so we have an opportunity here to, uh, to take our failures, and, and God would tell us that he can use those failures to help ourselves, to help other people as well, and we don't have to be defined by our failures. So we're talking about courage in our failures. So if you got your Bibles, go with me to Joshua chapter 7 on page 151. And these black Bibles in your chairs, you could use those. Uh, I'll sh- and we can, uh, I could show you what I'm talking about here. But um, if you don't have a Bible, go ahead and take one of ours. And uh, we'd love to just make that a gift from us to you. And if uh, you are a digital person, you want to use your smartphone or your iPad or tablet, you can uh, go to the App Store and you can search Grace Ohio. You can actually get the Grace Church app and you can get to today's passage of study that way as well. So that's where we're going. And once you get there to Joshua 7 on page 151, just lay that in your lap because I just want to pray for us here this morning and ask God to kind of lead us and guide us in our conversation here today. Well, God, I just want to say thank you so much. Lord, thank you for every individual in this room here this morning. And God, I know that uh, failure is something that, uh, Lord, it's an upsetting experience. God, it can be uh, demoralizing and it can, uh, it can weigh us down, God. And it's something that, Lord, uh, it's just part of the human race, God. Being a person, it's not if, it's when you're going to experience failure, God. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would speak to us this morning, God, that you would make us men and women of courage, even in our failure. Lord, I think of your word, and it says, even in the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Your rod and your staff, it, it comforts me, and it, and it guides me, God. So I pray that you would lead us and guide us in our conversation today. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I remember when I was in eighth grade, I was on the uh, eighth grade basketball team, and I was not very good at basketball, but I really liked being on the team, uh, basically because of the camaraderie and the companionship. You guys, if you've played sports, you know how that is. It's really awesome being a part of a team, and I have three sisters, so I've never really experienced what it's like to have brothers, so being on the eighth grade basketball team, that was that for me, and so I really enjoyed it. And so if you know anything about sports, you know that you win as a team and you lose as a team. And unfortunately, to my disadvantage, you also are disciplined as a team as well. And so when I was in middle school and high school, I wasn't the best student. Um, I didn't really apply myself, and I kind of messed around a lot in class. And the teachers, I don't know if you know anything about that, but the teachers don't really appreciate that, and you distract their class. And a lot of times, they don't want to put up with it. They'll just kick you out in the hallway. And so... I spent most of my school out in the hallway. I got real familiar with the halls. And um, I, was, I was fine with that at the time. <laughs> my coach, my basketball coach, uh, saw me in the hallway. And he just walked past. He didn't say anything. And I was like, I guess it's not a big deal. Cool. Later on at practice, I'll never forget, 
<laughs> he said, everybody line up on the line. <laughs> Jeanette wants to mess around at school. Everybody's going to run suicides. <laughs> so we did that on top of our initial practice. And if you don't know anything about suicides, you basically run back and forth for a really, really, really long time until you get really, really, really tired. <laughs> and so I remember as I was doing that, as I was running back and forth, I was trying to talk to some of my teammates And they did not want to talk to me. They were not happy with me. (laughs) And I remember in that moment, you go, why tell me that this morning? The reason I tell you that is because it was in that moment that I felt a feeling. I felt this experience, this upsetting experience, this demoralizing feeling. The feeling that I felt that morning was failure. And my guess is a lot of us in this room this morning have felt that at some point in time in our life. We've experienced the demoralizing, upsetting experience of failure. And sometimes what can happen is this, we can allow those failures in our life to define who we are, and we'll start to believe things about ourselves that are not true. And then a lot of times what happens is in our failures, we start to believe a certain way about ourselves that aren't true, and then it ends up affecting the way that we feel, and then it affects our emotions. And a lot of times what that does is it bleeds and it trickles over into our behavior, and sometimes our behavior can be really, really destructive because of the things that we think about ourselves, the lies that we tell ourselves, the way that we kind of define ourselves as a result of those failures in life, right? And so this is something that a lot of us can kind of identify with, and I'm sure if we had the time, you could tell me so many stories of where you found yourself in a place where you felt that way, where you felt demoralized and you felt uh, like a complete and, and colossal failure in life. But God would look at us and he would say that he can use that situation or that upsetting experience, that demoralizing feeling, and he can actually use that for a useful and constructive uh, way in our lives. And it can help, we can can help ourselves, we can learn from that, and we can help other people as well. And so I'm encouraged to know, we should all be encouraged to know that we are actually not unaccompanied when it comes to this feeling of, of failure, this fear of failing in our lives. Because Joshua and the Israelites, as we're going to read about today, we're going to find that they were very, very familiar with this feeling of failure. And so we're going to break in in our text today. But before we do, let me just kind of give us a, a snapshot of what's happening here and tee us up in this conversation. Last week, we kind of talked about this a little bit, but let me just kind of brush us up here. Um, Basically, what is happening here, this story, uh, if we were to put this on a timeline, the book of Joshua takes place somewhere between, biblical archaeologists think that somewhere between 1500 and 1200 BC. And so we have to understand that there's a distance in time, there's a distance in language, and there's a distance in culture. And so we can still draw profound implications that still speak to us today where we live and breathe. And so it's exciting to think about, it's fascinating. And at least it is for me. And so the book of Joshua. There's some important, famous people of the Bible that we have to consider with this book. Last week, we talked about how they took this city of Jericho. And the reason why they ended up even being there in the first place is because this guy in the Old Testament, his name is Abraham. He's the father of faith. And this man, Abraham, God made a covenant with Abraham. He made a promise to Abraham that he may make him a father of many nations. And he promised them him this land. He said to go to this land called Canaan. Abraham, along his journey, he ended up dying. And he ended up uh, having descendants, and they multiplied in great number, and they became this people group known as the Israelites. And And they were enslaved in Egypt for centuries upon centuries, until one day, this other dude named Moses led the Israelites out of their captivity, and then... Eventually, what, hap- what ended up happening is Moses passed away. And so Moses has a successor, and his name is Joshua. 
And that's the book of Joshua, the same Joshua that we're reading about today and we read about last week. And this man, Joshua, he's a total stud muffin. He then is the successor for Moses, and he is uh, basically, he wants that promised land to become a reality. And so there, right before the promised land, Moses passes away. Joshua then takes the baton, so to speak, and he leads the Israelite through this river called the Jordan River. And God is going to give this promised land to his people Israel. And so last week we read about this city of Jericho. And let me just kind of refresh our memories for those of us that uh, were not here last week and kind of help us again to get our heads in the right place with this. This city of Jericho is a walled city, and it was a fortified city. And again, humanly speaking, it was an impossible city for the Israelites to take. So just imagine this walled, fortified city. And then it's important for us to understand uh, for today that the people that lived inside of this fortified and walled city of Jericho was this people group known as the Canaanites. And these were very uh, morally corrupt people. They practiced uh, child sacrifices. So if you think of like a Stephen King movie, it's like basically like that. It's really messed up. God says these people have to go. He wanted to eradicate the, the entire Canaanite uh, religion. Uh, a lot of biblical scholars believe this would have been the epicenter for moon worshiping as well. And so what we see here is this people group that God is leading to go take this city. He gives specific instructions in how to go do that. And it's fascinating when we, when we read about it. What God says, the Bible teaches us that, that God gave specific instructions for Joshua to have these armed men. So imagine these armed men marching around the walls, this city, this fortified city of Jericho. And on the seventh day, he said, seventh, seven priests with trumpets of ram's horns. Just imagine these priests marching around with trumpets of ram's horns. They said on the seventh day... After you march around the seventh time, these priests, they're all marching in front of this thing called the Ark of the Covenant, which represented the presence of, of the Lord. The seventh time, the priests would blow these uh, trumpets of ram's horns, and then all of these armed men would shout. So just imagine, all of these armed men, they shout. And then what happened is that the walls of Jericho came toppling down. And the Bible says that they, then they went into the city, and they burned the city and everything in it. Now, here's why this is important for us to know today. Because God gave these other instructions as well. He said that when you go into that city, you're going to find silver and you're going to find gold. And you'll also find articles of bronze and iron. And he says you are not to take those. Those are devoted things. They're sacred. They go inside of a treasury. And so the reason why I share that today is we're going to come to find that one man disobeyed that. And, he, and his sin affected all the whole people group of Israel. So we're going to break into our text now. Now that we have this information, we can take that and we can dive into and break in at verse 10. So verse 10 says this, The Lord said to Joshua, Stand up. What are you doing down on your face? Verse 11, Israel has sinned. They have violated my covenant. Now covenant is just this transaction, this contract between God and, and this, uh, the people to not take those devoted things. They have violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. They have taken some of the devoted things. What are the devoted things again? It's the articles of bronze and iron, the silver and the gold, in the city of Jericho. They have stolen. They have lied. They have put them with their own possessions. That is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They turn their backs and run because they have made lot. <clears throat> Because they turn their backs and run because they have been made liable to destruction. Now catch this part right here. This is important for us to know for today. God says this, I will not be with you anymore unless, unless 
If you're a person that writes in your Bible, I would encourage you to circle or underline that word, unless. It says, unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. And watch what happens next in verse 13. Go consecrate the people. Tell them, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow. For this is what the Lord of the God Israel says. So that word consecrate, it's not a very common vernacular word. I can't remember the last time I asked somebody, what are you going to do today? Well, I'm going to consecrate myself, of course. Consecrate's basically just a fancy pants way of saying that you're going to set something apart for the services or the worship of God. That's what that word means. So he says, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. And here's what God says. There are devoted things among you, Israel. You cannot stand against your enemies until you remove them. So let me just explain what's happening here a little bit. They just took that city of Jericho. God said, don't take the devoted things. We come to find that someone did take those devoted things. They went to go take another city. And the city, the name of the city was called Ai. It was spelled A-I. And they, when they went to go find that, take this city, they, the Bible teaches they, they sent 3,000 men. And 36 of these men were killed. The Bible tells us that they chased the Israelites from the city gate as far as the stone quarries and struck them down on the slopes. And the Bible says that at this, their heart, the hearts of the people melted in fear it became like water. Now, I don't know what that feels like, but it doesn't sound good. And so the Bible says that, just imagine, they send 3,000 men, 36 of these men are killed. Imagine the failure that the Israelites must have felt. Just that demoralizing, upsetting experience that they're feeling right now at the time. And so if we skip forward, fast forward to verse 20, what we're going to come to find here is that this man, Achan, or Achan, however you want to say it, I don't know how they pronounce his name, This guy confesses to taking those devoted things, to taking the silver and gold articles, bronze and and silver. And here's what he says. I just want to preface that that this is basically, um, the Bible teaches us in Romans chapter 6 that the wages of sin is death. And we see this in its rawest form right here. And this is very staggering to read. It's alarming to read. So I just want to preface that. So in verse 20, here he says, Achan replied, it is true. I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. This is what I have done. When I saw in the plunder a beautiful robe from Babylonia, 200 shekels of silver, a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels. Here's what he said he did. He said, I did three things. I coveted them and I took them and they are hidden in the ground inside my tent with silver underneath. And and this really just kind of describes our sin nature, doesn't it? This is what all of us kind of do. We, this isn't, he's not the first person to covet. He's not the p- first person to take something or to hide something. It, it basically describes what James says in James chapter 1, that, that, that sin gives birth, that, that, action, that desire gives birth to action. Action gives birth to sin, and sin gives birth to death. And what we see here is sin in its rawest form right here, that the wages of sin is death, what the Bible teaches us. And so break in at verse 25, skip ahead a little bit, and notice the way Joshua responds. Notice the way that Joshua responds right here. Joshua said, why have you brought this trouble on us? The Lord will bring trouble on you today. And then what happens next is kind of one of those verses that you don't want to get on a coffee mug. You don't want to get this verse etched onto a sweater. You don't want to get this verse tattooed on your body. This is a really staggering verse, what happens right here. It says, then all Israel stoned him. And after they stoned the rest, they burned them. Over Achan, they heaped up a large pile of rocks, which remains to this day. The Lord turned from his fierce anger 
Therefore, that place has been called the Valley of Acre ever since. That's pretty messed up. And when I read that, I'm not going to lie, this is just one of those verses and passages in the Bible that I'm like, if God let me take any verse or passage out of the Bible, this might be one of them. But when we read this, we're confronted with it, and we've got to do something with it. We have to figure out what does this mean? How does this apply to us? How does this affect the guy at the gas pump, right? In chapter 8, we come to find that they ended up taking the city of Ai. They ended up taking that same city where they sent 3,000 men, 36 other men were killed. They ended up going and taking that city. And then the Bible teaches us that Joshua renewed the covenant, that Joshua read the book of the law to the whole assembly of Israel, which would have been their Bible at that time. He read the book of the law to all the men, the women, and children. And so you go, that's a pretty messed up story, man. (laughs) It is pretty messed up. But we can learn something from it, and here's why. Guys, when I read this passage, when I read this, by, when I'm in my own you know, personal time in the Word, I think to myself, man, I wish I, could, I wish I could say that I identify with Joshua's character the most. Man, that's who I am. I'm Joshua. I'm the one leading the Israelites on this military conquest, taking the land. I'm on God's side. But I've got to be honest with you guys. If, if I was really to tell you the character that I identify with most in this passage— the character I identify myself most with this passage is this man, Achan. If you were to double-click on my life, I think, I think you would be pretty shocked. Those of you that know me wouldn't be shocked, but a lot of you may be shocked to find what you'd see. If you were to double-click on my life, you would see that I'm pretty messed up. And you would see that I've got a lot of junk in my life. And, I, and I've had a lot of failure in my life. And I've had a lot of shortcomings and a lot of us, the truth of the matter is, we all are this man, Achan, are we not? We can all identify, because if you think about it, what did Achan do? He, he said that he coveted, and then he took, and then he hid. And a lot of us, we do that. We hide our, the sin in our lives. We hide a lot of the junk in our life, right? And so what we see here is that the Bible says the wages of sin is death. And so we go, well, this is weird because it almost seems sometimes we have the natural proclivity to read a passage like this. And we think, well, that's weird. It seems like God is like a different God in the Old Testament. It almost seems like he's not the same God. Doesn't Jesus say to love your enemies? Man, this just seems like a, a totally different God. And so we get a little bit confused with this. And we talked about this a little bit last week. And we say it again because this is the gospel. This is the centerpiece of our faith. The Bible tells us that we're more messed up than we think we are. Bible tells us that I'm more messed up than I think I am. The Bible tells us that we're all more messed up than we think we are. But the good news is that we're more loved than we could ever imagine. And the reason why I can say that is because one day God would come born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law from the curse of sin. The Bible tells us that Jesus Christ, he who knew no sin, became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's the gospel. Bible tells us it is by grace that we are saved through faith. And so if you are here today and you feel like a complete and utter failure and you feel like a colossal failure, then I just want to encourage you. You, couldn't have, you could not have picked a better time to come here today. You really couldn't because you are in a room full of people who can all identify with that. We can all identify with this man, Achan. We all have sinned. We all have fallen short of the glory of God. But the Bible tells us that we are no longer slaves to sin for those of us who put our faith in Jesus Christ. And if you're here today, 
and you feel like a failure, perhaps maybe you feel like a failure in your marriage. Maybe you feel like a failure when it comes to your parenting. Maybe you feel like you're a failure when it comes to being a dad. Maybe for some of you, you dread Father's Day next week because you're like, oh, man, I don't even want to think about being a dad because I'm not a good dad. Maybe for some of us, you feel like a failure when it comes to being a mom. Maybe for some of us in this room, you're, you're in middle school or high school, and, and when you think of you know, your academic achievement, you feel like you fall short of having the approval of your mom and dad. Maybe for some of us in this room, we feel like a moral failure, like we've failed God, like there's this sin or addiction in our life that we just have been trying to fight on and on and on for years and years and years, and we just, it has a python grip on our lives, and we can't overcome it. If you are here today, and you feel like those failures define who you are as a person, can I just say something to you this morning? If you forget everything that I say in this message this morning, remember this, that Jesus chooses and uses failures. Amen? Jesus chooses and uses failures. Guys, that's the God, that's good news. That is good news. And I'm not saying that we celebrate our failures, but I am saying that we celebrate the fact that Jesus chooses and uses failures. I've seen this play out in my own life vividly in so many different situations. If you were to double click on my life and you were to see some of my past failures and you see where God has taken me now, And I don't boast in myself, I boast in Jesus Christ because in my weakness, it's him who's who's strong in that. And it's him who, he can use those failures so that I can help other people and so that I can identify with them and so that I can show them that God wants to meet you where you're at and take you where you need to go. He wants to help you and he wants to take your failure. He doesn't want you to feel like you have to define yourself by your failures. You don't have to believe that way about yourself. And so for some of you, we all just really, really need to hear this today. And for some of you, I've talked to you, and you've told me that you feel like a failure. And I want to tell you that when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, that he clothes you with his righteousness. He forgives you through his blood, and you are made new through Jesus Christ. We are given, we we all need to hear this uh, this morning. This is a message for all of us. This is a message for me. This is a message for you. All of us need to hear this today. And you. I want to share this verse with you in Romans chapter 8, 28. It says, and we know that in all things, all means all, all the time. In all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purposes. And so there's so many examples that I could give you of this, of this profound idea that Jesus chooses and uses failures. But let me give you a couple examples. We're not alone in this. We are not unaccompanied in this feeling, this demoralizing, upsetting experience of failure. Let me give you some examples here this morning. We see in our Bibles, in Genesis chapter 27, Jacob deceived his father and stole his brother's inheritance. In Exodus chapter 2, Moses murdered an Egyptian, the same Moses that led the Israelites through the Red Sea out of their Egyptian captivity. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, we see David. David, the Bible says David, this is a man who is after God's own heart, the Bible teaches. David committed adultery with Bathsheba, his friend's wife. He impregnated her and then got his friend killed in war. We see the Bible teaches us in Acts chapter 9, the Bible says that the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul who wrote most of our New Testament, the Bible says that Paul persecuted followers of Jesus. Paul essentially was basically a terrorist. 
The Bible says that all of these men were considered godly men. And even they failed. But God used them mightily. God used them mightily because Jesus chooses and uses failures. This is good news, you guys. This is good news. And again, we're not celebrating the fact that we fail. We're celebrating the fact that God uses failures for the advancement of the kingdom of God and to help other people. I've seen this in my life. I've seen this in so many of your lives. And if you are here today and you feel like a complete and utter failure, I would encourage you to join the ranks of the men and women who can say that Jesus chooses and uses failures. So let me try to put some skin on this for you because I, I feel like we're still trying to uh, download this a little bit and percolate on this idea that Jesus chooses and uses failure. Let me just say this to you today. Jesus chooses you and uses you in spite of your career failures. Jesus chooses you and uses you in spite of your marriage failures. Jesus chooses you and uses you in spite of your academic failures. Jesus chooses you and uses you in spite of your athletic failures. Jesus chooses you and uses you in spite of your moral failures. In spite of those addictions you're trying to fight. In spite of the sin that's so pervasive in our lives right now. Jesus chooses and uses failures. As this is good news. And so I just want to kind of cast some vision for us right now, if I could. Imagine what this could look like if this became a reality in our lives. If we all were to grab a hold of this profound truth that Jesus chooses and uses failures. What could that look like? If we tape that on our mirror, we put that on the dashboard of our car, put that in our wallet, write it down on a piece of paper, and, and remind ourselves to not let our failures define who we are, but to remind us what we have in Christ. Imagine a father who feels like a failure in his parenting, but he remembers that Jesus chooses and uses failures. What would that do? Don't you think that would encourage it, encourage a father? Imagine a stay-at-home mom. Who, she's so tired. She's not getting enough sleep. She probably watched Frozen seven times, trying to clean up the crushed Cheerios out of the carpet. And she wants to give up. She feels like a failure. She says, I can't do this. But then she remembers Jesus chooses and uses failures. Imagine a middle school or high school student who wants to make their mom and dad proud, wants to do a good job with sports, wants to do a good job with their grades. And they try their hardest in that they still feel like a complete and utter failure. And they let those failures define them. But then they remember that Jesus chooses and uses failures. Imagine what that could look like. Imagine a young college student who struggles with an addiction, whether it's alcohol or drugs or pornography. And they just want to give up. They're just like, I guess this is just the way things are. I guess this is just who I am. But then they remember that Jesus chooses and uses failures. Imagine, imagine a community of Medina, a people who becomes this redemptive community because we're not so focused on having it all together, right? What does that even mean? But instead, we remember that Jesus chooses and uses failures. 
imagine a person that comes into these um, walls in this auditorium, this cafe, and they feel like a colossal failure. Just came out of a broken marriage. Just came out of a broken addiction. Just sin is just kicking their teeth in. But then they are reminded through the love and through the body of Christ that Jesus chooses and uses failures. Imagine, guys, what that could do. Imagine. I want to invite the band to come up now. And as they get settled in, I just want us to kind of take a personal inventory of our hearts right now and ask ourselves, where at in our lives do we see failures defining who we are as a person? Changing the way we believe about ourselves, the way we feel about ourselves, the behavior that it causes in our lives. Next time you find yourself in a situation where you feel like a huge failure, I want you to remind yourself this. Jesus chooses and uses failures. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I just want to say thank you. Lord, thank you. I've said it so many times, but I have to say it again. God, Jesus chooses and uses failures. Lord, thank you that you are a good, good Heavenly Father. Lord, you wish no person to perish, God. Lord, we read this passage in Joshua, and we are confronted with the harsh reality that all of us are aching, God. We are all this man. We all fall short of the glory of God. There's no one righteous, not even one. But Jesus, you came, God. You became and became a man. And you died a criminal's death on a cross. And Lord, your Bible tells us that your blood forgives us. And you clothe us in your righteousness. And Lord, we can find our identity not in our failures, but we find our identity as sons and daughters of Christ for those who place our faith in you, God. So we thank you for that. Lord, thank you for your message in the book of Joshua, God. I pray for every individual here today, God, who struggles with the same thing that I often am confronted with, God, that, Lord, we don't have to be defined by our failures, God, but we can continue to pursue you and continue to get back up and to encourage ourselves with this gospel that Jesus chooses and uses failures. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.